Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you get there, when you get there, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, we looked at the question, what happens after our bodies break down? What happens after we die? What's next for us? And Paul showed us that it's not a matter of if, but when for our bodies to break down. He likened our earthly bodies to tents. Like you would go camping and, and put out a tent and there are just a temporary dwelling place. And Paul went on to say that for the believer, we have nothing to fear in death. We have nothing to fear about what happens after our physical bodies break down because to be absent from the body, he says, is to be at home with the Lord. That these physical bodies, these tents, they weren't made to last forever, so we shouldn't be surprised by the aches and pains of life. We shouldn't be surprised that when we wake up one day and we go, oh, we're like, what, did you work out yesterday? No, I'm just getting old or whatever. You know, we shouldn't be surprised, but we should keep our eyes fixed upon the hope that is to come. He wrote in, in verse 1 of the same chapter, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, if we really believe these things, if we really believe that this life, our bodies are just temporary and that we have a, an eternal home waiting for us, a, a house built by God, then Paul goes on to say that it ought to affect the way that we live our lives. Because what we really believe is proven by how we live. James would write, faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. It doesn't make sense. Why would we do this? And Paul wrote, we looked at last week, verse 9 and 10, Therefore, we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, he says, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his good deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
So Paul is saying whether we're, we're still in these bodies here on earth like we are today or we're with the Lord, we're face to face with him, we should seek to be pleasing to him. That this should be the desire of every believer. Paul says that we should be ambitious to seek the Lord. Remember that word means to, to live life with aim, to live life with purpose towards what? The target of pleasing him because judgment day is coming. And Paul says we're going to all give an account for what we've been given. We've all been called to be stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. And the question will be, well, what did you do with what he gave us? If all he gave us was time, what did we, how did we spend our time? If all he gave us was money, <laughs> that would be wonderful. But like, how did we use our resources? If he gave you a gift or a talent, how did you use that? And Paul says, all will like matter not unless you did those things unto the glory of the Lord. That's what will last. And you think as followers of Jesus, what a responsibility that we have to live our lives unto the Lord, to please him. Now, have you ever asked your, yourself this question? What am I doing with my life? You ever asked yourself that? What am I doing? Maybe you asked it like when you're in your 20s, maybe late teens, everyone's asking like high school graduates, what's your life you know, going to look like? What are you going to do? What are you going to, you know, like, ah, like, you know, what am I doing with my life? But you know, there's a deeper question that I want us to ponder this morning. Because we all have things going on. We're all purposeful in life towards something. And the question is this, why am I doing it? Why are you doing what you're doing? In other words, what drives you? What, what compels you to make the decisions that you make? Or one last way to say it, what motivates you in life? Many people are motivated by comfort, aren't they not? We live in America. We love the American, the idea of the American dream. And they think if we could just make more money and we could afford a nicer and bigger house and a certain lifestyle, then I could be comfortable. And so they're motivated by that. Others are motivated by power and position, and all they want is more influence. And they, they want to feel important, and they think that the only way that they're going to be valued at all is if they have power and position. Or they don't want to submit to others, and so they seek just to have that freedom, that ability to change anything and everything a part of their lives. But we also have to be aware that there are religious motivations as well. And religious motivations, listen, church, are just as far from God as secular ones. Because many people in the church can be motivated by guilt. They think, oh, God is mad at me. That's why I'm reading my Bible, to make him happy with me. Or I did this thing and God's upset with me. And if I don't get better in life, then, then he's going to get more mad. And guilt becomes a motivator for us to try to be obedient to God. Others can be motivated by shame. Maybe something you've done in the past. Oh man, because you know I've done this, I'm disgusted with myself and I'm not worth anything and I'm not valued. And, and they're motivated by shame. They think, if okay, if I do this, then I'll be something. Others can be motivated by pride. I think of spiritual pride, religious pride. And it normally happens once we've been around the church for a while and we start thinking that we've got it all figured out and everyone else doesn't have it figured out and we start being motivated by this condescending pride. I'm going to climb the ladder, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the good Christian and I'm not going to be like all these other people. We're motivated by religious pride. And if we're honest, all of these are powerful motivators, 
They all have the ability to get us going and to get, you know, take action, get us to take action in our lives, but they're not necessarily good motivators. Because while they can motivate us in certain aspects, they can also destroy us. So let me ask you, what motivates you? What motivates you? In our, in our text this morning, Paul gives us three reasons to be motivated to live for the glory of God. Something that will drive you without destroying you. Number one, so what motivates you in life? Number one, we're going to see the fear of of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Paul starts this section by saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. And so when we're talking about motivation, right, and we're talking about fear being the motivator, that might surprise you. Because maybe we get so comfortable. I think we, we as believers sometimes can get so comfortable with the Lord. We can get casual with Jesus. We think, oh, Jesus is loving. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is meek. Jesus is kind. And maybe for some of us, we can start thinking that, oh, that's all he is, right? That's all he is. And maybe we unintentionally start thinking of Jesus as some sort of pushover, if you will. That he's, that he's just available to me whenever I need something from him. And I just appeal to him in that way. I can use Jesus, right? Oh, don't worry. Like, don't worry about my Jesus philosophy. He never pushes back, right? He's cool. He's nice. He's kind. He's gracious. But church, let me say this. If, you, if that's your thinking, may we remember that, yes, of course, one million percent, Jesus is gracious and kind and loving and, he, and, and, and just so patient with us, but he is also holy and mighty, and he is worthy, and he is sovereign. He is the king of kings. Amen? So let us not forget that while Jesus is our Savior, he's also our Lord. He's also our Lord. He, he's the master. He's the one in control of our lives. You see, when Paul's speaking of the fear of the Lord, he's no doubt referencing the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord's a common theme. And when you look back at it, it's not talking about a terror of condemnation. It's not talking about being oh, afraid of God because of his judgment. No, no. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's not as if we're going to be afraid because we don't know how he's going to respond to us. Some of you, you might have grown up in households like that, right? You walk out of bed every morning, out of the bedroom, you're like, ah, how is my parents going to respond to me? Like, you know what I mean? Because you're, like, you're just walking on eggshells, thin ice all the time. No, no, no. Listen, a proper fear of the Lord comes within the context of knowing who God is. Knowing who he is, that he is, church, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he will also not acquit the guilty. He is holy, he is righteous, he is just. And so when we come before the Lord and we have a proper fear of him, we need to recognize that this is a reverent awe. The fear of the Lord is a, is a reverent awe. It's not seeing God as scary, but seeing him as holy. That he is set apart. That he is pure. Again, the fear of the Lord is a reverent awe that upholds God as supreme over all of life. It's having just a radical God-centeredness that shapes every aspect of our lives. God, here's the keys. 
In other words, the fear of the Lord is about taking God seriously. So when Paul talks about having a fear of the Lord, let me ask you this question. Do you take Jesus seriously? Do you take him seriously? Or do you just view Jesus as kind of a buddy to you? Is Jesus viewed to you kind of just as a, as a get-out-of-hell-free card, I liken it to? Like you just keep him in your back pocket for when you might need him, right? I mean, if you're ever in trouble, he's just there, right? Or do we take Jesus seriously? Because when we read through the gospel accounts, we see that we should. Because although Jesus is loving and kind, again, he's holy and just. In Mark chapter 3, this is the story where Jesus goes into the synagogue. He finds a man with a withered hand, right? And we're told that he's got compassion on him, right? But the, the Pharisees and the religious elites of the day, they're like, man, is Jesus going to heal him on the Sabbath? Right? And so at the same time, you have this Jesus who is merciful and he's compassionate and he actually heals the man, but we're told that he has anger towards the Pharisees and religious leaders. It's the same Jesus simultaneously together. John chapter 2, we know this story, Jesus clears the temple. When he did it, it says that he flipped over tables. He comes in. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. They've made it a den of thieves. People are taking advantage of others, making money off of them. And we know this story. It doesn't, just, it doesn't say that Jesus comes in very politely and says, hey, hey, Dave, I need to flip over your table. Is that okay with you? And, uh, you know, no. It says that Jesus gets a cord of whips, right? He, he, and, and he starts flipping over tables. This is a Jesus we have to take seriously. In Matthew 23, Jesus does what no other believer would do, and he goes to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And you know what he calls them? He looks at them, and he says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Talk about an insult. Oh, you got your religious garb on, right? You, you're decorated on the outside, but inside where it really matters is filled with dead man's bones. You're dead on the inside. So let me ask us this morning, do we as a church, do we as individuals, do we as sons and daughters of the king take Jesus seriously? I think if Jesus were to walk in today, the resurrected Christ, and he, if he were to walk down the middle of the aisle, I don't think we would start treating him like a celebrity, right? I don't think we would get our Instagram and, or be real or whatever. That would be really real. But, like, you know, like, I don't think we would do that. I don't think we would come to Jesus and just say, oh, Jesus, like, Pastor Ryan's not answering any of my questions. Like, I have a lot of questions for you. Like, here's this, 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 why this? No, no. I think that if Jesus walked in here today, I think we would fall on our faces. I think we would tremble before a holy king, a mighty king who is in our presence. Do we take Jesus seriously? And the question that this passage is answering is, how does that motivate us? How does the fear of the Lord motivate us in our lives? I'm sure I don't have to say this, but fear is a powerful motivator. Our fears motivate us all the time. Some of you, you might have a fear of failure. And because of that, you, you work long hours to make sure that you're never seen as a failure. Some of you have a fear of being alone. And so it's caused you to jump from relationship to relationship that you know is not healthy and you shouldn't be in. Some of you have a fear of man over a fear of God. And it causes you to be a people pleaser. 
You're saying yes to things that you know you should be saying no to. So we're constantly, as people, being driven by our fears, but a fear of the Lord, a reverent awe of him, will lead us, the Bible says, to a life of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where it all starts. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so it's when we see God and we uphold God as supreme and central in our lives that it puts everything else in perspective and place. That the fear of the Lord motivates us to live a life unto the Lord. And Paul is saying that when we properly fear the Lord, it allows us to live life unto him and to live life where we can fully be used by him. And here in this passage, Paul gives us three ways that the fear of the Lord motivates us. Number one, the fear of the Lord motivates us to persuade men. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, we take Jesus so seriously. We take the word of God so seriously. And we take the mission that Jesus has given us so seriously. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to look at verse 20, where Paul would go on to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. He says, be reconciled to God. Paul is saying that we as believers, as followers of Christ, we've been given a message and a ministry of reconciliation. And Paul is saying that because we have a fear of the Lord, because we have this reverent awe, this trembling respect for him, he says, therefore, it should motivate us to want to persuade others to follow Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, Paul says that he doesn't say you need to force men to do this. He doesn't say, like, you need to be a jerk to men, right? No, no, he says persuade men. That word persuade means to cause someone to do something through reasoning or argument or to cause someone to believe something, especially after a sustained effort. And church, this is our calling. This is our calling to persuade men to Jesus. And I know that in our culture, there's so much pushback when we talk about sharing our faith, is there not? You might get pushback in your workplace, your, at your job, at your school, at the supermarket, whatever. Like you, We get pushback and all of these things. But I just want to remind us that as followers of Jesus, this is who we are. We're called to persuade men. And you might hear that and be like, but pastor, like, they don't like it. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I had a friend who had a son, and he always said that. I don't like it. Anyways, like, that's going to be your coworker. You might be, like, sharing your faith. and like, look at what Jesus has done for me. And they're like, I don't like it. Like, you're making me feel uncomfortable, right? They think you're some sort of fanatic, Jesus freak, proselytizing in the workplace. They're completely offended. Listen, you need to remind them, we're not the only ones persuading people. Everyone in life is out there persuading others. Did you know that CNN, if you're a CNN watcher, they're trying to persuade you? Fox News, trying to persuade you? The public school system is trying to persuade your children? Did you know that? The culture all around us is trying to persuade us. So everyone is trying to persuade. But listen, we are called to persuade people as well. 
And not to an ideology, not to a religion, but to a person, and his name is Jesus. Yeah, come on. That's our calling. And so think about it. Okay, Lord, okay, that's our calling. We fear you. Lord, the call is to persuade others. And guess what? He, every day, he puts people in our path. He puts relationships in our lives. And so think about that. Who has God placed in your life? It could be a next-door neighbor. It could be a spouse. It could be a friend. It could be a co-worker. Pray for them. Persuade them. Do Reason with them. Argue it out, not mean way, you know, like argue it out, battle for their soul with them. Invite them to church. Listen, we cannot change people's hearts. We cannot in ourselves save anyone, but we can persuade people. We can do everything in our power to persuade them. We can pray for them that God would open their eyes to see Jesus and soften their hearts to receive him. So this is our calling, church, to persuade. Because we fear the Lord, because we have a reverent awe of him, we persuade men. It fuels our evangelism. Number two, the fear of the Lord motivates us to forget about ourselves. He says in verse 12, we are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. And again, although Paul has been defending himself throughout this letter, even though he's defending his apostolic authority, he's saying, listen, I'm not promoting myself. I'm not, I'm not commending myself. And this is countercultural for the, for the church of Corinth because Corinth was a strong culture of self-promotion. It was a young city. It was a new and growing city. And to become this, this growing, vibrant city, you had to promote yourself. You had to make yourself of something. It's the same like we, in our culture, we have social media, right? Social media is all about self-promotion. I don't care if you're like, ah, but maybe it's not. No, you're promoting something. We're all our, our own PR managers, right? This is my brand. This is my image. Here's my wonderful filtered life and all of those things. And so what we have to realize is that the fear of the Lord Church changes it all. When we have a proper reverence for God, it frees us to forget about ourselves completely. There's a song that I grew up singing. I don't know if it's from the 70s. I didn't grow up in the 70s. But I'm just saying, I count kind of reminds me of a, a Maranatha song from the 70s. And it says, let's forget about ourselves, magnify the Lord, and worship him. And it just repeats that. Let's forget about ourselves and magnify the Lord and worship him. And listen, church, having a fear of the Lord Having a reverent awe of who he is and what he has done causes we're free to be nothing because he's everything. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, the fear of the Lord motivates us to look at the heart more than appearances. So important. Look at verse 12 again. We are not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. So Paul is acknowledging a culture that they have that focuses on external over what is internal. This is exactly what they, they were doing with the Apostle Paul. They were, they, were, they were critiquing him, saying, Paul, you're not very impressive, right? Paul, you're not that great of an orator. They put more value in how things were said than what things were said. The world doesn't look at you, Paul, and they don't, they don't, they don't think, wow, like you're such a great leader. But again, Corinth was a, a culture that valued the external over the internal, and this is the same thing that we see in our culture today, isn't it? 
We value the external over the internal, but it's not just in our culture. We have to be very careful because it can so easily infiltrate the church and it can infiltrate my life and your life. We can spend so much time focusing on the outside. How do I look on the outside? How do, what do people think about me? What's their perspective on me, their perception? What kind of stuff do I have? What kind of car do I drive that people can see? And we spend so much time in our lives focusing on the external, and we can neglect the internal. And Paul says that the fear of the Lord should motivate us to focus on what matters most. And church, that is your heart. That's your heart. There's no greater, I don't think, example in the Bible than what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is a passage where Saul is the first king of Israel, but God has rejected him as king. And so they have to find a new king. And so the Lord tells Samuel that he's gonna raise up a new king for Israel out of the, the family of Jesse, one of the sons of Jesse. And so, Paul, or so Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says, hey, Jesse, um, I've got to anoint, you know, a new king for Israel, and the Lord's told me it's one of your sons. And so if you can kind of just imagine the scene, here's, here's Samuel, and he's asking for, Je I liken it to American Idol. I grew up watching kind of American Idol, and that's how I've always pictured this scene. And it's like, okay, Samuel's the judge, and, and Jesse's bringing in his sons. And so he brings in his first his oldest son, I think his name's Eliab, and he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome, right? He looks like a king, smells like a king, walks like a king. You know, he just, he, he's a king, right? And Samuel thinks, oh, there he is, that's him. King, nope. And the Lord's like, nope, <laughs> that's not him. That's not the one. And so Jesse's like, okay, this is confusing, but good thing I have a second son, you know? So he brings his next, his second oldest in, and, and he must have been impressive, impressive as well because Samuel looks at him and is like, okay, this must be the king. And the Lord's like, nope, not him either. <laughs> and he does this seven times. Seven times. You gotta be thinking, if I'm Samuel, I'm like, Lord, like, was it Jesse or Jessica or what? Like, who, like, what house was I supposed to go to? This is not going well. And so Samuel looks at Jesse. He's like, is this all your sons? Is this all? Is this all you have? And, and Jesse looks at Samuel. He's like, well, I mean, <laughs> king sons, yes, maybe. Like, you know, like, he's like, I have one more. He's the baby of the family. He's actually out with the sheep. He's pretty dirty and smelly. He's just a little shepherd boy. He's not really the king type that you're looking for. But Samuel's like, well, what, what am I going to lose? So I bring him in, right? And little David comes in. And God tells Samuel, he's the one. He's the one. He's going to be the next king. How? Shepherd boy David? Little David? The most unimpressive of the whole group? David? How? Why? God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And listen, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not just talking about your emotions and your feelings, though it is, but also your will, your mind, your thoughts. The heart is at the core of who you are. And you might be here this morning and you might be like, but look at, I'm so impressive. I'm like Eliab, right? I'm, I, I'm tall, I'm dark, I'm handsome, I look like a king. 
I could command an audience like a king could. People would follow me. And you're putting your, your value in the external. And God's saying, how about your heart? I've rejected Eliab. I rejected Saul. I rejected Abinadab. I rejected seven sons of Jesse because I was looking for one person who had a heart that was tender towards me. One person. And we know that David, he had a heart after God's own heart, right? He was a man after God's own heart. It's been said, church, that the heart is the steering wheel of your life. Where your heart goes is where your life goes. Proverbs 4.23 tells us, above all else. Underline that line in your Bible. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. So what's in your heart is what comes out of your life. And that can be good or bad. Look at the fruit of your life. Where are you at right now? It's all stemming from this place in your heart. Let me ask you, where is your heart right now? Where's my heart right now? For some of you, you might not even be aware. You're like, wow, I don't even know where my heart is. Like, you're just, maybe you're just keeping up. Maybe you're just going through the motions. You're performing. You're playing the game. And maybe you've neglected your heart for so long. It's been a long season since you've done heart surgery that you're not even sure this morning where your heart is right now. Let me ask you, where's your heart? Is it open to the Lord or is it closed to the Lord? Have the trials in your life or the disappointments in your life made your heart more tender, more soft? more pliable, or has it hardened your heart? Saying, Lord, mm. where is your heart? God cares about our hearts. Listen, he's not just looking for external obedience. Oh, man, that's so easy. Oh, we just check, check, check. He's not looking for you just to do certain things to appear good. No, no, no. Obedience matters, but all of our obedience should flow from an just a heart that is gripped by the love and grace of God because when God gets our hearts, he gets everything from us. He gets our lives. So what, what motivates us? The fear of the Lord. Lord, I view you. You are, I just have a reverent awe of you. Secondly, what motivates us is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul's saying, Corinth, if you think we're crazy, we're okay with that because we're crazy for the Lord. <laughs> but, if we're, but you think we're of a sound mind, then it's for your benefit too. And then he goes on in verse 14, and here's the key. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died Now, when it talks about the love of Christ here, let me ask you, is he talking about Christ's love for us or is he talking about our love for Christ? The answer, yes. <laughs> I think Paul is, is referring to both God's love for us and our love for him, but the order to that is the key. First John 4 says we love because he first loved us. A response. So yes, primarily, I believe wholeheartedly, actually, that he's talking about Christ's love for us. And this is important because as we're talking about motivation, 
I know we're, we're, we've been thinking about, okay, what motivates us? Why do we do the things that we do? But have you ever asked the question, well, what motivates Christ? What's Christ's motivation? I'll tell you this. Jesus is not apathetic towards you. Jesus is not indifferent towards you. He's, he's not undecided. He's not like on the fence about how he feels towards you. Church, Jesus is passionate about you. He loves you. He is right now even pursuing your heart because he cares deeply about you. He loves you. But his love for us does something in us. That's why Paul says that the love of Christ controls me. Your translation might say, compels me to do what I do. Like, it just compels me. If someone were to ask Paul, like, Paul, why do you keep going? Like, what motivates you to keep going? You, you've been shipwrecked, you've been beaten, you've been hungry, you've been naked, you've been cold. Like, what keeps you going? You know what Paul would say to them? Man, because Jesus loves me so much. Jesus died on the cross and he would just get into it. Therefore, because of that, I give myself away freely. That's why Paul could say, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, the love of Christ controls me. It motivates me to keep going. You know, there's so many things in life, as we've already talked about, that can motivate us. But God wants to motivate you with his love. With his love. And when we finally understand how much God loves us and that he's welcomed us by his grace, it becomes a motivator for us. And serving the Lord becomes a get to, not a have to. I get to go to church. I get to open the Bible. I get to pray. I get to serve. I get to persuade others to know Jesus. Why? Because Jesus loves me so much. So church, let me remind you, Jesus loves you. And he didn't love you because you're so impressive. He didn't love you because you added so much value to his team. No, the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, he died for us. He went to the cross to display his love for us. So what motivates us to serve the Lord? What motivates us to, to honor the Lord with our lives? That we fear him? his love for us, and thirdly and lastly, the gospel of grace, Paul says. You see, we're not just motivated by who Jesus is. We're motivated by what he has done. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So the love of Christ is not just a feeling, but it moves towards action. That Jesus looked at you and he looked at me and he looked at our sin. He looked at our, our brokenness. He looked at our messiness. And he says, man, I want to go into that. Where maybe our sin might repel one another. Jesus is attracted towards it. He stepped into our mess and he says, man, I love them. I care for them. And we have to acknowledge our sin because while God loved us, church, we didn't repay in that same way. We didn't return his love. We neglected God. We have forgotten God. We have insulted God. And yet God was persistent in his love. God says, I'm not, I don't care about the rejection of my love. I'm going to keep loving them. I'm going to keep loving them. I'm going to keep pursuing them in my love. And this is why he sent Christ to the cross. 
that Jesus was 100% perfect, perfect, without sin, but he willingly took on our sin and our shame, put it on his shoulders and died on the cross in our place. Why? Because he loves you and because he loves me. And again, it's not because we were so lovable, but it's because he's so loving. And Paul says at the end of verse 14, therefore all died. In other words, because Christ's work on the cross, the old you is gone. And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. That you're not bound to your past. Amen? <laughs> that you're not defined by your past mistakes. You're no longer a slave to sin. Paul would say, you are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. This is good news. And this is why we're motivated to give our lives to him. Is because he has freed us. He has set us free from the bondage and the chains of sin and of this world. And he goes on to say in verse 15, and he died for all. Woo! Why? Look at this. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So all of this, church, all Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, the grace that he lavishes upon us is so that we might not live for ourselves. Listen, church, the message of the culture today is do whatever, whenever, however, like whatever makes you happy, do it, right? Focus on your reputation, right? Look out for you first. Focus on your success, your comfort, your kingdom, your glory. And Paul is saying here, listen, Jesus died for us so that we might die to ourselves and live for him. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus gave us new life, church. Not that we can just live for ourselves and our pleasures and our dreams, but to live for him. Jesus died on the cross not to comfort you in your sin, but to free you from your sin. To free you. Don't forget that you were in bondage to this world. Oh, sin says, man, or the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a moment, but in the end is like destruction, it's death. That's what we were in bondage to, death. And Jesus came to set the captives free. The question is, are we living for ourselves or are we living for Jesus? And only the gospel of grace, that unmerited favor of God, has the power to free us from our obsession to live for ourselves and to truly live lives for the Lord, where we live lives for his kingdom, his glory, not our glory. We live for his glory. We live for his purposes, not our purposes. The question is, have we died to ourselves? Yeah, pastor, I died 30 years ago and I gave my life to Jesus. Now, Paul say, I die daily. <laughs> are you dying to yourself today? Or are you still living life for you? 
Have you surrendered to the Lord? Have you come to the Lord lately and says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. May the fear of the Lord and may the love of Christ and may the gospel of grace lead us to live surrendered lives. God, it's all for you. John the Baptist would say, I must decrease so that he may increase. And that might be the call for some of you today. God's working on your heart. God's trying to get, get your attention in the most loving and yet aggressive way possible. <laughs> and maybe the call's for you to surrender. Surrender your life. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you came here today and you're far from God, but someone dragged you here or you're like, oh, maybe I feel patriotic or whatever. I'm going to go to church 4th of July weekend. I don't know. You don't know Jesus. Listen, the call for you is to surrender your life, to give your life to him, and to experience true, everlasting life. Respond to the love that God has for you. And for those of you today that are believers, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for decades. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. That's a long time to walk with Jesus. But maybe you've realized that, man, I'm starting to live back for my own kingdom and I'm masking it with a facade of I'm living for the kingdom of God when really underneath the surface, you're living for yourself. And I think God's heart for us, he would call us to back to himself. Say, no, 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 no. Let's have a right perspective of God. Let's have a reverent awe together as a church of who God is his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. Let's not forget that he loves us so much. And not only does he love us, not only was he perfect for us, but he died on the cross for us. Let's, let's allow the Lord to stir our affection for him once more so that we can live lives fully unto him. Lord, we, we ask this, God, that you would work in our hearts Lord, you know where each one of us is at today. You know the, the apathy. You know the indifference. You know the, the struggles. You know where we are right now. Lord, we might not even know where our heart is, but you do. And I just pray, God, that you would work in us. Lord, that we wouldn't be motivated to serve you or to put on a show for you because we're trying to get something from you or, or from others, Lord, that, but we would be truly motivated to serve you, to live lives unto you, because we fear you. We fear you. And because you love us. And because you are gracious towards us. So I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would continue to minister to us, Lord, help us to truly surrender to you. Our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions, that we would come before you this afternoon just with open hearts and open hands to receive from you. That we would allow you to peel back the layers, to search deeper, Lord, in us.
Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together.